Good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning and sharing from the Word of God. Uh, the title of the message this morning is Renewing the Mind. And um, our scripture reading was in Romans chapter 12. And I just want to go back there. And Romans chapter 12. And Paul begins with an appeal, right? He says, I, I beseech you. And this appeal is, is, to really understand this appeal, we, we have to see what everything that comes before. This appeal was in the context of everything that he has talked about previously. And uh, if you study the book of Romans, the book of Romans has to deal with righteousness by faith. Uh, in this book, he, he expounds on this great doctrine of God's uh, gift of his righteousness, the universal need for God's righteousness for humanity and how God has given this gift freely to all humanity. So this is, uh, he's building this, this doctrinal portion of his book, of his letter, in the first chapters. Well, the majority of the book is, is this section. Um, just uh, building a, a massive fabric of doctrine. And once we get to chapter 12, he starts his practical exposition. From chapters 12 onward, you're going to see that the Apostle Paul becomes very practical in his message. And all these practical applications are based on what he has uh, talked about previously. Uh, Paul is, is really what he's telling us is, you know, in light of all what God has done for us, right? In light of the, the free gift of salvation, in light of uh, the, the Spirit working in our life, then he makes this appeal. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. Uh, this, this word reasonable is, is um, in, in the Greek, it's the word that we get our, our word for logic from. In other words, this is the logical thing. In light of what God has done for us, the logical thing is for us to be willing to surrender our lives to His leading. Uh, this is... This is, uh, this is the proper response in light of all of the, all what God has done in behalf of humanity. Then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And this is what I want to focus on this morning, this aspect of renewing of the mind. But um, this experience of the renewing of the mind, it, it takes place in the context of someone who has experienced righteousness by faith. Someone who has, um, because, of, in, because of all what God has done for them, they have willingly submitted and surrendered their life. They have laid their life on the altar 
of sacrifice. And now begins a, a, a whole experience of renewing the mind, of reshaping the mind. And he, he starts with another uh, command. He says, do not be conformed to this world. And it's interesting, this, this word conformed, um, it gives the idea of kind of like, it's like, it's the idea of a mold. The world is trying to mold us and shape us into something. Okay, the, the world, sin is like a sculptor, and it's trying to shape you into something. And Paul is calling us to resist this molding of the world uh, through its customs, through habits. You know, our life has been shaped and molded by the world. And Paul wants us to uh, resist this. You know, there's no escaping the reality that human patterns of thinking, of feeling, believing, behaving, have been shaped by the cultures in which we, we live and, and, and grow up in. And Peter speaks about this reality of, of you know, how sin is, uh, has shaped us in his epistle. If we turn to 1 Peter... Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, and uh, in English you can't see it, but uh, he's going to use the same word that, he's going to use the same word that is used by Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he says, as obedient children, not what? not fashioning or not conforming yourselves to what? Your former lusts or your former desires. Peter is saying, you know, your past life has shaped you. And even though you experience genuine conversion, you know, your past life and habits are still going to want to the world is still going to try to shape and mold you, and you have to resist that by the grace of God. In the Greek, the, the word is transliterated as schematizo, to conform oneself to another pattern. It's interesting. So again, the world has a pattern that it wants to shape you and mold you into. And as Christians, we need to resist the shaping and the molding, the sculpting of the world's pattern. At the same time, and again, this is, this is in the light of someone who has experienced genuine conversion. You know, conversion doesn't just automatically uh, obliterate all your past bad habits and ways, wrong ways of thinking that you have uh, cultivated and, and, and the mold of your mind. Let me read to you a statement from Christ's Object Lessons, page 281. Ellen White says, uh, And let none flatter themselves that sins cherished for a time can easily be given up by and by. This is not so. Every sin cherished 
weakens the character and strengthens habit. And physical, mental, and moral dep depravity is the result. You may repent of the wrong you have done and set your feet in right paths, but the mold of your mind and your familiarity with evil will make it difficult for you to distinguish between right and wrong. Through wrong habits formed, Satan will assail you again and again. So you can genuinely repent, right, of your past life, and yet you are going to still struggle because of wrong habits that have shaped and molded your mind. And she says, Satan is going to assail you again and again through those, those specific avenues. This is why it's so important, this, this call, this appeal to renew our minds. What Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He's calling us to have an experience of renewing the mind. There in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse... So let's read verse 14 again, and we'll read all the way to verse 16. So, like Paul, he tells us to not conform to this world, right? Not conform ourselves to our former lust, our former desires that have shaped and molded us. He says then in verse 14, as obedient children... Sorry, yeah, um, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So God has called us to a transformation of our mind, and that transformation of our mind is the experience of becoming holy. Or sanctification. Holiness is not just a divine declaration. Uh, it's a human vocation. Something we are called to be. And in this epistle, uh, the, the Apostle Peter gives us, he enlightens us to some of the sanctifying agents that God uses to make us holy. In chapter 1, verse 2, he tells us, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit plays a key role in that process of sanctification. Not just this, but in uh, chapter 1, he goes on, and, and, and throughout the Bible, we're, this is not going to be our study today, but throughout the Bible, you see that the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. So there's, const, there's a number of passages where the, the work of the, what the Holy Spirit does, you'll read other passages being described as this is something that the Word of God does because they work together. Um, you know, in John chapter 3, it talks about being born of the Spirit, right? Well, right here in chapter 1, uh, verse 23, notice, um, notice what Peter tells us, or, or Peter refers to as the agent in being born again. He says, having been born again, not of what? Corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the 
word of God which lives and abides forever. So here he attributes the, the being born again to something that happens through the, the word of God. And again, it's not either or, it's they work together. Sanctification of the spirit, as Paul says in Thessalonians, and belief in the truth. God's word, Jesus said in uh, John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So God's word, God's truth, and God's spirit work together in that process and experience of sanctification. Uh, they, they work together in uh, bringing us new life in Christ and being born again, but they also work in the experience of sanctification. And Paul, Peter refers to this in chapter 2. If we go to chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, what does he say? Oh, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Growth, the experience of sanctification, growing in Christ takes place through the word of God. But here's um, a distinction uh, that I want to make, and I'm not placing these as uh, either or. It's not this or that. Um, sometimes we can get mixed up in, and, and it has, I, I've seen this uh, tendency in, in my own life to, sometimes we can, we can believe that um, learning truth, uh, it's about just gaining information, okay? That sanctification is just about learning things from the Bible, learning right doctrine, right? Right belief. And that is part of the experience, but it's not just that. The renewing of the mind, it does take place through new information from the Word of God. And we need this new information because, as it tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the way you think is not exactly how God thinks. And that's why we need an experience of renewing the mind. We need to have a new way of thinking. But renewing of the mind is not just about new information. If we're going to understand the process of sanctification, we need to understand something very important about ourselves as human beings. Human beings are shaped and molded not just by our not just by information that we receive but primarily through our longings and desires yesterday dr nedley spoke about self control and he you know he shared his own experience how he thought that hey in 25 years heart disease was going to be a thing, you know, unheard of, right? Because now this new information was going to come out and it was just going to convince everybody to do the right thing. You know, how many of us have right information and yet we don't practice it? 
The information is there. So the problem is not just with having right information. There's something deeper. And again, it goes back to, uh, uh, it goes back to how human beings are, how we behave. You know, how does our mind work? Our mind, we are not just shaped by information. We are primarily shaped by our longings and our desires. They have a greater effect on molding and influencing us than than just right information. Again, I'm not pitting these two against each other, so don't, don't take this the wrong way. We need right information. Right information is very important, but right information can never be uh, separated from the right longings and desires. Evangelism, page 291, Ellen White says, we must have more than an intellectual belief in the truth. And then reading here from Desire of Ages, Desire of Ages, page 309, Ellen White says the following, and this, this was something that really, you know, hit me the first time I, I read this. Um, She says, the greatest deception of the human mind in Christ's day was that a mere assent to the truth constitutes righteousness. So in the time of Jesus, what was the greatest deception? Was that because you knew the truth and you consented, you said, I believe in this, 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 and this, that was equal to righteousness. She goes on saying, in all human experience, a theoretical knowledge of the truth has been proved to be insufficient for the saving of the soul. It does not bring the fruits of righteousness. A jealous regard for what is termed theological truth often accompanies a hatred of genuine truth as made manifest in the life. The darkest chapters of history are burdened with the record of crimes committed by bigoted religionists. The Pharisees claimed to be children of Abraham and boasted of their possession of the oracles of God, yet these advantages did not preserve them from selfishness, Malignity, greed for gain, and, the, and hypocrisy. They thought themselves the greatest religionists of the world, but their so-called orthodoxy led them to crucify the Lord of glory. And then she says, the same danger still exists today. Many take it for granted that they are Christians simply because they subscribe to certain theological tenets. Because you can say yes, 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 and yes to these doctrinal uh, uh, truths here, you are a Christian. But they have not brought the truth into practical life. They have not believed and, here's an important word, they have not believed and Loved it. 
Therefore, they have not received the power and the grace that comes through sanctification of the truth. Men may profess faith in the truth, but if, but if it does not make them sincere, kind, patient, forbearing, heavenly-minded, it is a curse to the possessors. And through their influence, it is a curse to the world. So actually, to, to know the right doctrines and know the, the, the truth, but to not actually have it sanctifying the soul, it actually makes us a curse to the world instead of a blessing. So again, going back to, to, to this point, we need to understand uh, something about ourselves. We are molded not just by information, but by our longings and desires. So what does this mean? That, you know, in the experience of both in conversion and in the experience of sanctification, we need to make sure that our longings and desires are being aimed at Christ. You know, we need to be cultivating love for God, not just love for doctrine, okay? And, and I know that sometimes, you know, we, we put these as if they're against each other, and I'm not, you know, sometimes there's people that say, you know, Give me Jesus, you know, don't give me doctrine, give me Jesus. And that's a, that's a false dichotomy there, right? Um, they're one. But it can happen to us that we can just hold on to doctrine and actually reject Jesus. And so we, we need to learn to aim our deep longings and desires to Christ. Our wants and longings and, the desi- and our desires are at the core of our identity. It's the wellspring from which our actions flow. And this is why in Proverbs 4.23, maybe you're familiar with this passage, Proverbs 4.23, Solomon tells us to guard the heart, right? And why? What reason does he give us? For guarding the heart, keeping the heart with all diligence. Because what? Because out of it are the issues of life. You know, life flows from that which is in the heart. Jesus is a teacher And he doesn't just want to inform our intellects, but he wants to form and shape our longings and desires. He doesn't want to just deposit information in our minds. He wants to give you new longings and desires for for holiness, for transformation. And these desires begin to uh, shape and mold our life. And we, we can see this in Scripture. And, and one of the places where we see this uh, very clearly is in the Psalms. If we go to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Notice what the psalmist, how he, he speaks of 
God, and, and you, can, you can see this aspect of uh, longings and desires there. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I, when shall I come and appear before God? You know, the, the psalmist had deep longings for God. Psalm 63 Go to Psalm 63, verses 1 through 3. He says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts. That's the language of longing, desire. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. The psalmist had deep longings for God. And again, these deep longings for God were not separated uh, from God's word or God's truth. Actually, the same longings that he had for God, for God's presence, for God's person, he expresses those same longings for God's word, for God's truth, for God's law. If we go to Psalm 119, Psalm 119 it's just a, it's a beautiful psalm exalting God's law, God's word, God's truth. Psalm 119, verse 97. David says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. The psalmist didn't just love God and long for His presence. He longed and loved His, his word, His law, His truth. And that's going to be true in our experience. Because Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, the one will flow into the other naturally. Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah also expressed this. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Jeremiah tells us, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of... My heart. You know, he longed for the word of God. And that longing led him to, to search the word. And when he found it, what did it bring to his life? Joy and rejoicing. 
joy and rejoicing. So again, in this experience of renewing the mind, we need to seek not just for new information, but we need to pray and ask God for new longings, new desires that then begin to shape and mold our minds, our lives. You know, when was the last time that you had an experience like this? When was the last time that you were moved by deep longings for God, for His Word? Where you could say like David, you know, oh, how I love thy law. Where you could say like David, you know, my, my soul thirsts for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. You know, I have these deep longings for you, Lord, for your presence. This is what really uh, has an effect on shaping and molding our life. The power of love. In the book, Acts of the Apostles, page 557, Ellen White here speaks about the Apostle John, and and she uses his life as an illustration of the experience of sanctification. And she says, Acts, Acts of the Apostles, page 557, In the life of the disciple John, true sanctification is exemplified. Okay, so his life is a, it's a a model. It shows us what, how true sanctification takes place in our life. Now, I, I want you to pay close attention to how she describes this experience of sanctification in the life of the apostle. So she goes on saying, During the years of his close association with Christ, he was often warned and cautioned by the Savior, and these reproofs he accepted. As the character of the Divine One was manifested to him, John saw his own deficiencies and was humbled by the revelation. Day by day, in contrast with his own violent spirit, He beheld the tenderness and forbearance of Jesus, and he heard his lessons of humility and patience. Day by day, his heart was drawn out to Christ until he lost sight of self in love for his master. The power and tenderness, the majesty and meekness The strength and patience that he saw in the daily life of the Son of God filled his soul with admiration. He yielded his resentful, ambitious temper to the molding power of Christ and divine love wrought in him a transformation of character. I want to ask you something. You know, when you think of Jesus, you know, when was the last time you contemplated the life of Christ and viewed it in love and admiration. 
You, you see, you know, one of the things that really molds us, and this is true for the, the molding and the sculpting that the world does to us, it's true in, in, in the experience of sanctification, that we are molded and shaped by the things that we admire. That which you admire has, has an influence to shape and mold your life. You see, and because John got to the point where he, he admired Christ, you know, when he looked at the life of Christ, when he saw his humility, when he saw his, his graciousness, when he saw his, you know, the way Jesus interacted with people, all that, he longed to be like him. He wasn't just storing information about Jesus. You know, he wasn't just storing facts about him. His heart was moved by longings to be like him, and he longed to be like him because he admired what he saw. Do you admire what you see in Jesus? You know, sometimes we, we see Jesus' humility, but guess what? We don't admire it. Because when, and how do you know? Because when you get faced in a situation where you have to be humble, what comes out? Self and pride. And it shows, you know, that something else, you know, we're, we're, there's still something of the molding of the world in us. In, in his epistle in First Peter, you know, um, Peter holds up Christ as our example in suffering. And let's, let's turn there. You see, because to, to experience this, you have to long, you have to desire to be like Jesus. You know, you have to admire that, that the power of his, of his humility to want to then do this and live this in your life. If not, you're going to read about Jesus and you're like, okay, you know, Jesus did this, but when you are faced with a similar situation, the flesh is going to come out. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he starts talking about... Um, Servants in their relation to their masters. And we'll start with verse, uh, with verse 18. And we'll read all the way on to uh, verse 24. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering, wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it, how? Patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. In other words, you know, if you take patiently uh, some, a scolding that someone gives you and you deserved it, you know, that's not really, that's not really admirable, you know. I mean, you, you deserved the scolding. Uh, but he says, but if you didn't really deserve it, you know, it was undeserved. And he says, and you patiently endure it, uh, 
He says, this is commendable before God. You know, God honors this. Why? Then he gives us the reason. Verse 21. For to this you were called because Christ also, what? Suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So why is it commendable to suffer unjustly with patience? Because this is what Jesus did. And if you're admiring that character of Jesus, then guess what? You're going to want to be like him, not just in his power, not just in his glory, but you're going to want to be like him in his humility, in the way that he endured unjust suffering. It tells us verse 22, who committed no sin, nor deceit was found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." you won't do this unless you really love and admire the character of Christ. And and you've allowed that, that example to actually shape and mold your desires to the point of you want to suffer patiently just like Jesus did. You long to, you know, when you are insulted, when you're treated wrongfully... You, you don't have that desire to just respond or you're not allowing the, the, the world's mold to shape your response. You're saying, I want to respond like Jesus. No, I want to bear this patiently. That's the experience that John had. And again, it goes back to this, this idea of, you know, Christ as an example but an example that we actually love and admire. Let me read to you another statement from Ellen White. This is from uh, Maranatha, the devotional. Maranatha, page 74. Powerful, uh, uh, just a a powerful description of how of human nature and how we are shaped and molded she says every association we form however limited exerts some influence upon us the extent to which we yield to that influence will be determined by and then she's going to list three things okay so every Association. Every person that you come into contact with is going to exert an influence on your life. Think of this influence as something that is molding you, something that is shaping you, something that is making you into someone. Every association. Now, what are those three factors that, um, that cause the influence to be greater or less upon us? in our association with one another, the extent to which we yield to the influence will be determined, number one, 
the degree of intimacy. So the more intimate you are with someone, the greater their influence upon you. That's why someone that's not your friend, right, tells you something and it's just like, hmm, I don't When someone that is close to you, the closer that person is to you, when they say something to you, guess what? It has more weight. It has a greater influence on your life. So that's the first one. Degree of intimacy. Number two, the constancy of the intercourse. So it's not just how intimate you are with the person, but the more time you spend with the person, the greater what? The degree of influence they're going to have on your life. So the closer you are to the person and the more time you spend with that person, the greater influence they're going to have on your life. And the third one is what we've been talking about before. The third one is our love and veneration for the one with whom we associate. The greater love and veneration. What would be another word for veneration? The admiration that you have for that person. The greater your love and admiration for that person, the greater their influence on your life. And after telling us these three things that, um, that affect the degree, the the intensity of influence or how much someone influences your life, these three factors, then she says, thus, you know, because of this, okay, taking this into consideration, thus, by acquaintance and association with Christ, we may become like him, the one faultless example. You see, the more intimate your relationship with Jesus is, the more time you spend with Jesus, and the greater your love and admiration for Jesus, the more the life of Christ is going to influence, shape, and mold you. So that we will be like Him. And this is part of the experience of sanctification. It's not just knowing things about God and knowing things about the Bible. You know, knowing about the Sabbath is very important. And the Sabbath has to do with sanctification. But you know where, where the real link between Sabbath and sanctification is? That on the Sabbath, that's the day that you're supposed to be spending time with God in a very special way, in a way that... You don't, um, not in the same way that you do throughout the week, because on this day, you don't have to be distracted by all those other responsibilities that you have to carry out. That's the day where you can have a more intimate relationship with Jesus, spend more time with Him, contemplate greater His love and His sacrifice for us. And if you're doing that, then guess what? The Sabbath is having a sanctifying influence in your life. It's not just because, oh, I know that the Sabbath is the right day to keep, and, and you know, I keep it, because guess what? 
The Pharisees were very good at keeping the Sabbath, yet they were not being sanctified by it. Why? Because there, was no, there wasn't this experience of being molded and shaped by God, by the character of God and wanting to be like Him. They were just keeping a day. Right? They were just doing things and not doing things on a certain day, but that was not having a sanctifying influence in their life. We need this experience. And God has provided, you know, as we study the scriptures, as we read about God, as we read about the life of Christ, you know, God has provided uh, the, most, uh, the most powerful story that can touch and awaken love in our life. And sometimes, you know, and, and, and I've seen it in my own experience where, you know, yes, you, you hear about the cross, and yes, you know, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And, and sometimes that, um, it kind of becomes old, but you know what? That's where the power is to awaken love in our hearts for God. For Paul, it was the cross. The cross was the constraining power that kept him going. We read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. And Ellen White comments on this experience of the apostle in Gospel Workers, page 293. And she says the following, after quoting this verse, The love of Christ, said Paul, constraineth us. This was the actuating principle of his conduct. It was his motive power. If ever his ardor in the path of duty flagged for a moment, one glance at the cross caused him to gird up anew the loins of his mind and press forward in the way of self-denial. In his labors for his brethren, he relied much upon the manifestation of infinite love in the sacrifice of Christ with its subduing, constraining power. So for Paul, there were moments in the life of Paul where where his motive power, what was happening? His motivation was, it was going down. It was flagging. But he knew where to, to recharge. He knew where to uh, uh, power up that motivation. And what was that for him? One look at the cross. I'll read it again. If ever his ardor in the path of duty flagged for a moment... One glance at the cross caused him to gird up anew the loins of his mind and press forward in the way of self-denial. In his labors for his brethren, so this was not just in his own life, but in ministering to others, he relied much upon the manifestation of infinite love in the sacrifice of Christ. Why? Because he knew that in the cross there was subduing and constraining power. 
There is power to lead a person to surrender their life to Christ. And there was power to encourage that person to, to constrain them to follow in the footsteps of Christ. There was power there in that, in, in the cross, to lead one to take up his own cross. And that experience of discipleship. Think about your own life. Think about your own experience for a moment. How much of what you do, how much of uh, how you respond to the different situations of life, how much of who you are has been molded and shaped by the life of Christ? You know, how, how much time do you spend actually not just learning things about God, but admiring His character? You know, longing to be like Him. This is part of the experience of sanctification. This is part of renewing the mind as we contemplate the model the Holy Spirit works to shape us and renew us into that image and this is what Paul speaks about if we go to uh, 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 3 This experience of of transformation takes place as we uh, contemplate a model. As we behold something, the Spirit of God works to shape and transform us into what we are beholding. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we, as we behold the glory of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord is, God's glory is His his character. As you behold that character and as you, as you admire that character, as you spend time with God, as you, you, you draw intimately close with God and, and you're beholding that image, that character of God, the Holy Spirit works to transform us. The Holy Spirit works to give us new longings and new desires. To the point that our deepest longings and our deepest desires will be for for Christ. There won't be any other competing 
desires. There won't be any other, you know, other, other things that absorb our, 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 our interest, our longings. You know, He will be our everything. And we have to, you know, this is not something that happens automatically. We need to take our longings and desires to God and ask Him to renew them, to purify them. John chapter 7, Jesus spoke about where, where our longings need to be directed. John chapter 7, verse 37 we read, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We need to take our longings to God. And as he renews our longings, as, he, as we are given these Longings, these deep longings for holiness, for purity, for being like Jesus, this is what the Holy Spirit is going to use to then mold and shape our lives. And as we allow this process to take place, let's go back to Romans chapter 12, and we're actually going to finish with this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, And do not, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good, that perfect, acceptable will of God. You know, as we are being renewed as the mind is being renewed. We will know what is the, you know, our, our, then our choices will flow from these new longings and desires that have been implanted in us. We will know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God for our life. But remember, what precedes all this? Verse 1 of chapter 12. The life given as a sacrifice. Surrender. If you haven't surrendered fully to God, none of what we've been talking about can actually happen and take place. You know, it first starts with full surrender. A conversion experience. And, and remember, conversion is not just a one-time thing that happened 20 years ago, right, when I gave my life to Christ, it is a daily experience. As we surrender on a daily basis, that's why Paul said, you know, I die daily, I'm crucified with Christ. As we experience death to self daily and offer our life as a living sacrifice, then our minds can be daily renewed by God. And he can implant those new longings, those new desires. 
and we can be shaped by those things to be like, like Christ. The divine example, our model. May this be our experience. Pray that the Lord will bless us and He will help each of us to, again, we're not just learning about information. We want God to give us new longings, new desires. And these new longings and desires begin to shape our life as we admire the character of Christ, the character of God. Uh, It will work to then make us more like Him. So that we act like Him, we respond to situations like He would have responded. May the Lord bless us and keep us in this experience of sanctification. Our kind and gracious Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for the work of the Holy Spirit, and for the power of truth. Your word, we pray for deep longings to be like Jesus. We pray for deep longings to to love your word, to love your law, as David did. And we pray that these deep longings and desires will begin to shape and mold our, our lives into your image so that the character of Christ can be restored in our life. We thank you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.